welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today, I'm joined by Dan Austin and Professor Susan Hauser. Professor Hauser teaches civil procedure, bankruptcy, and business associations and has been a member of the faculty at North Carolina Central University School of Law since August 2005. She received the University of North Carolina Board of Governors Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2013 and was named Professor of the Year by her students in 2011 and 2008. In the fall of 2012, Professor Hauser served as ABI's Robert M. Zinman Resident Scholar, and in October 2012, she received the American Bankruptcy Law Journal Editor's Prize. She also was an American Bankruptcy Law Journal Fellow in the fall of 2005. Professor Hauser is a frequent publisher and speaker on issues relating to student loan debt in bankruptcy. Dr. Daniel Austin is an attorney in Erie, Pennsylvania. He previously taught at Northeastern University School of Law in Boston and at Edinburgh University in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, and has practiced bankruptcy and commercial law for over 20 years. Dan has lectured at universities in China, Russia, and Turkey, and has authored books and articles dealing with consumer and business bankruptcy. He also served as ABI Consumer Bankruptcy Committee Task Force Leader from 2010 to 2012. He, too, is a frequent speaker on issues related to student loan debt. Susan and Dan are the co-authors of ABI's newest publication, the second edition of ABI's very popular Graduating with Debt, which we'll discuss today during our podcast. So Susan and Dan, welcome. Thank you so much for being with me today. Glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks for being here. You both co-authored the original edition of this book in 2013. While you note in your intro to the new edition that the rate of student debt borrowing has decreased since the first edition of the book was published, you also note that Congressional Budget Office projects that the federal government will lend an additional $1.2 trillion for education loans between 2016 and 2026, and that some experts warn of an impending student loan bubble similar to the 2008 real estate mortgage crisis. So obviously student debt continues to be a problem, and this rewrite was timely. Has the rate of consumer bankruptcy filings attributable to student loan debt issues increased or decreased since 2013? Well, this is Dan. Um, the rate of student loan debt default is increasing, even though the number of new loans every year is not. The uh, the rate of student loan debt default is, in fact, increasing, particularly among uh, younger borrowers. Nobody separately tracks that. I have in the past, up to 2013. For the most part, nobody files bankruptcy, or at least very few people file bankruptcy, with the active intent that they will discharge their student loan debt. People may file bankruptcy because their student loan debt is such a large proportion of their overall debt that they can't pay their other debts, such as credit card or, or you know, medical bills that can be discharged in bankruptcy. But very few people file consumer bankruptcy with the idea in mind that they will, in fact, discharge their student loan debt. So it's really unclear subjectively what's in people's minds relating to their student loan debt. We do know that student loan debt as a percentage of consumer debt is greatly increased. Right now, it rests about something like maybe 23% of all student, of all consumer bankruptcy debtors have student loan debt. So we know it's certainly an impact we don't know exactly how many people file specifically because of their student loan debt. At least that's my perspective, Susan. I don't know if you have a different take on this. No, I, th I think your uh, I think your answer is is right on the money with this. 
I, I think the the short way to put it is there's no way to tell, um, but uh, the odds are that there is some increase um, simply because bankruptcy filings are going down, student loan debt is going up, uh, and and I think we're seeing this in the case law too. So w one of the things that I think we have in the new edition is uh, much more coverage of case law because of the volume of cases or decisions between 2013 and 2016. And and I think that reflects some increase in filings that are attributable to or or at least dealing with student loan debt. And so apparently it's still very a big issue, uh, definitely in consumer bankruptcy cases. And um, and that's, as I understand it, why you wrote the original edition of the book. So for those of us who, listening who may not be familiar with the original edition of the book, um, can you tell us who you wrote it for and perhaps review some of the major topics you address in the book? Dan, how about you start with that question? Foremost in my mind was practitioners. Uh, I had practiced bankruptcy law for a number of years before teaching and um, when I was teaching, I felt it was a good opportunity to sort of integrate the sort of, you know, legal theoretical aspects of student loan discharge with the practical aspects. And so from my perspective, I did it with practitioners in mind. I know that a number of judges have the book, and on occasion, I'll get a call or email from a person who's doing their own pro se case who's got the book in their hand as well and ask questions about it. That's great. And Susan, do you want to talk about some of the things maybe that you hit on just briefly um, in the book? I know it's consumer um, bankruptcy related, so student debt as it applies to consumer bankruptcy cases, but what are, what are some of the topics that you discussed? I think one of the, the most obvious topic, of course, is adversary proceedings under Section 523A8. Um, but some of the stronger parts of the book actually or that were more more surprising as we began writing it were areas that didn't necessarily deal with adversary proceedings but dealt with other areas of case law um, and that's continued to develop uh, since 2013 so uh, chapter two of the book focuses on the obligations that fall within section 523a8 and the point of this chapter ultimately is that if an obligation is not covered by the terms of the statute, then it's a dischargeable debt. And there's a lot of new case law out here. So it looks like debtors, attorneys, and judges are kind of exploring the boundaries of the statute. Um, some really, really interesting new case law here dealing with whether uh, the particular debt is a loan. Um, there's a very strong line of conflicting decisions um, dealing with whether particular obligations are obligations to repay funds um, received as educational benefits. Um, I, I was very surprised to see the decisions that fit there. Um, some of these um, decisions have actually made the, the press, so uh, if you've read decisions about whether bar study loans or college tuition are non-dischargeable, um, that's where those decisions fit in the book. Um, so um, that um, is actually an area of, of, you know, particular interest out there, I think, to debtors' attorneys. Um, any way that they can take the, uh, take the dispute out of the adversary proceeding um, and undue hardship 
part of the the statute is something that's going to help their clients out. So uh, Chapter 4 of the book deals with special issues in Chapter 13 cases. Um, and there's quite a bit of new case law there as well, dealing with the debtor's ability to separately classify that student loan debt in the Chapter 13 plan. Um, but in addition to that, um, the heart of the book, I think, and the heart of student loan litigation continues to be undue hardship. Um, so uh, Chapter 5 of the book is actually a litigation guide, um, a practice guide. It's, I believe, the longest chapter in the book um, dealing with that. And that kind of goes hand in hand with Chapter 3, which Dan wrote, um, dealing with undue hardship. So, so Dan... You should you should pick up here. So Susan's exactly correct that I think um, the procedural aspects of student loan discharge there's there's been more change over the last say three years than you know in the in the base law and undue hardship and and the area that Susan's working on is actually pretty interesting and exciting. As she points out though that the heart of it is five twenty three a eight the section that uh, exempts student loan debt from discharge except for undue hardship, and then the case law that applies 523A8, uh, primarily Bruner, uh, the, the, the Bruner test, and then in the Eighth and First Circuit, the totality of the circumstances test. Um, and the, the book, you know, reiterates the, the well-known three prongs of Bruner and in terms of changes, there's been a little, uh, it's been something of a glacial pace. If there is a change in the application of Bruner, I would say it's a slight loosening in some of the circuits of, of what would constitute hardship. In the past, uh, a, a debtor's failure to find unemployment, you know, despite diligent good faith efforts alone for a long time generally would never uh, you know cut it with a court and finding uh, that the undue hardship test had been met starting in 2013 and incrementally in some circuits since then there's been a loosening in the recognition that undue hardship should also include the debtors diligent efforts in the face of adversity to, to find uh, work. And in the past, that wouldn't have happened. So that's one of the uh, incremental changes there's been in, in the case law itself. It hasn't been monumental, and, and the more interesting action, as Susan points out, really is in the procedural aspects. But our book does um, take a close look at, at those circuits where there has been some loosening of the Bruner test and certainly that should be very encouraging to uh, practitioners and debtors as they examine their case and ask uh, if it fits in with the undue hardship as it applies in their jurisdiction. There has been some uh, liberalization of that. Yeah, I think um, just to add to, uh, to Dan's comments, a lot of the, ch because the changes are coming through case law and judges are uh, somewhat constrained by the existing case law, um, the changes are, are somewhat subtle, but they still can be um, very important. So one of the areas um, that's dealt with in Chapter 5, the procedural section, 
actually it has to do with changes in the standard of review on appeal. And um, there have been several circuit decisions, uh, recent circuit decisions um, since the first edition um, that have dealt with the standard of review on appeal um, and essentially finding um, that uh, the uh, standard on appeal for the sub-prongs of Bruner uh, should be clear error review, um, which means it's a very deferential standard of review and it gives the bankruptcy judge much more discretion in making rulings with some certainty that they won't be overru overruled on a clear error review on appeal. And in fact, we've seen more recent cases where judges have recognized and have used that discretion, carving out exceptions for a debtor's age, Mm -hmm. Carving out exceptions if the debtor has a lot of dependence. Um, discretion that, that I think we wouldn't have seen in the past, um, and, and that's certainly been a recent development as well. Yeah. And the book, I mean, I, reading the book, the book is chock full of practical tips, too. I mean, it has a whole appendix on, you know, motions and, and other sample documents that um, I think our practitioners uh, find very valuable. I know that, that we've gotten good feedback from the first edition on that. So, um, so that, you know, I really, that continues to be a great uh, resource for folks. Um, what about legislation? Um, has there been proposed legislation that would address some of these issues? Um, and where has that left off? Yes, of course there's proposed legislation, um, and it's the same cast of characters reliably every year. In the, in the Senate, it tends to be uh, Senator Dick Durbin with the usual co-sponsors, um, and each year the legislation is proposed and it has different names. Uh, the most recent was the Fairness for Struggling Students Act, and, mm -hmm. and the House always has its own version every year. And the idea is that both federal and privately guaranteed loans uh, should be uh, found should be able to be discharged in bankruptcy, as with other typical un or non-priority unsecured loans. So every year it is proposed, and it is never reported out of committee. Possibly, um, maybe more promising at least partial relief, uh, there's in the last few years, and, and there's pending now, legislation that would allow, that would grant employers a tax credit for paying uh, their employees' student loan debt up to a certain cap. And depending on the legislation, uh, the cap ranges anywhere from 6000 up to 10000 per year. Um, that's partial relief. Now, it's, of course, for those privileged grads who actually have jobs, uh, and, and in many instances are those less likely to need it. But if, if there's some promising, some legislation that may actually pass, uh, that would be it. But every year we'll see new legislation introduced to discharge student loan debt and bankruptcy, and it never gets reported out of committee. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be optimistic that it ever will at least not in the foreseeable future. Yeah, and and I, I think that that reality uh, actually explains some of the growth in case law that we're seeing. Um, so um, we're seeing things 
like bankruptcy judges who are not just sort of staying confined to the undue hardship question under 523A8, um, or when they are there, they're willing to push the boundaries a little bit more, um, but they're also uh, willing to be a little more creative um, in some of the other areas of dealing with student loan debt. Um, so I think the lack of a legislative fix combined with the volume of student loan debt and the reality of the debtors that bankruptcy judges see in their courts actually creates some pressure on the case law to grow and develop. Here's another example of what Susan's mentioned. Um, there are several bankruptcy judges who have put together um, what you might call loss mitigation programs, similar to that for home loans. So the idea of underwater home loans is that the bankruptcy court requires the borrower and the lender to get together to uh, go through certain steps to talk about the loan, see realistically what the lender will receive, uh, realistically what the borrower could pay, and then try to reach a middle ground uh, rather than have full-blown litigation over the the dischargeability or the outcome of the debt. And there's been some efforts with student loan debt in some courts to set up similar loss prevention programs. Um, I, I know I've been consulted about one here in uh, the Western District of Pennsylvania. And, and as Susan mentions, because there seems to be no really forthcoming in the legislature that, that you know, conscientious courts have considered other ways to try to address, uh, you know, individual student loan debt issues. So it sounds like the the way this will play out is is in the courts, and that you know lenders will challenge uh, bankruptcy court decisions um, being more lenient, and and we will we will have a you know battle in in the courts as opposed to really deciding anything in the legislature. There's other creative. Um, you know, economic things going on, such as, um, you know, private investment funding of education or private investment uh, refunding of, of student loans. So student loans are in default. Private investors will, will buy that default and reach some, at a discount and reach some accommodation with borrowers. So in, in, the, in the private sector and, and outside of court, there's also efforts underway as well. Well, it sounds like student loan debt will be an issue that remains at the forefront of our conversations in and out of bankruptcy. Um, and so this book is very timely. And I appreciate, Susan and Dan, all your hard work on the book and for taking the time to join us today for the podcast. For those listening, if you're interested in purchasing the Graduating with Debt uh, second edition, visit ABI's website at abi.org. And it all, as always, thank you for listening today. There are nearly 200 podcasts archived on ABI's website at abi.org newsroom on various issues related to insolvency. So until next time, from the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is Amy Quackenboss, and have a great day.